Hey, Jason. Dan of Bennett's Keep. Uh, it looks like the advertising dollars that you're getting from Joe are really working because that episode 252, top notch. Top notch episode. Definitely my favorite. In fact, you might want to end season one now and start season two because that was basically like, I don't know that you could get a better finale than that. Um, your guests, you know, the callers are really getting to, to be better. Yeah, all, all, all in all, a great show. Five and a half stars. Five and a half? Ten stars. You get all the stars, including one very particular star who calls in a lot. Well, pops up a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start up with some talking and some movie clips of popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on contest, and of course you know it's all about games. I said slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety. Aloha, Jason. Brian here. Realized I didn't get back to you and Joey on 248, your cyberpunk character creation. I did, in fact, finish it after calling in with some early comments. Uh, really good job. I, I don't know that I've listened to many character creation podcasts. I've, I've listened off and on to a few actual plays. But, yeah, I think you guys did a really good job. And as I said, this is one I missed but ended up getting the book and have been looking through it and definitely looking to play. So it's pretty cool to to hear that you know, 2020 still has a pretty good tale, I guess, even though Red is out. I know I've got the, the core 2020 book now and the Red Jumpstart. So I would definitely be interested if, if we could work out some time zone uh, challenges to maybe get a game. So if you guys are looking to get a game online – I could free up some either early or late time, maybe on weekends. And yeah, we should do it. I'll, I'll start uh, making a character based on uh, your guidance. Cheers, man. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. I really appreciate your tuning in today, even if you don't always agree with my opinion. Why do I say that? Well, the name's on the tin for this episode, Listener Revolt. And today is mostly calls of people that disagree with my opinion. And that's good. We don't want to be in an echo chamber, and we want to have a conversation. And you're not always going to agree with me, even if your dissenting opinion is flat out wrong, like a couple of the ones called in today. I did have two positive calls, and you've already heard those. That is Daniel Norton of Bandits Keep Podcast YouTube channel and Actual Play YouTube channel, there before the amazing opening credits by TJ Drennan. He was praising my last episode, which was pretty much all just calls from him and me talking like a pirate for International Talk Like a Pirate Day. And then we just heard from Brian from the Have to Look That Up podcast, who's calling us from down under about cyberpunk. Brian, I would love to have you in a cyberpunk game. We'll definitely have to schedule a separate game to do that. I actually have talked to Joe. Um, Of course, when I say that, I'm talking about the host of Hindsightless. And we're going to see what we can do. I'll reach out to you and we'll see. We might have to get some other players together from down your way though, to have a group. So maybe there's some other people in that area in Australia, New Zealand, maybe Japan that are interested in cyberpunk 
that we can pull in to fill out the roster for that game. I'm willing to get up early or to adjust my schedule to run a game for you guys. So we'll schedule that and see how it goes. But those two calls are pretty much, well, the the nicest things people say to me during this episode. So I'm going to do a few gaming recaps, and then we'll get into the controversy. So let's get to those game recaps. As far as gaming recaps go, this will be fairly brief because I'm not going to talk about all the games I've been in. I've been in a lot of games recently, which is great. Some of them I'm going to talk about next episode. I'm going to talk about narrative games and do they try too hard. And so I've recently played, or the past few weeks, I played in Fate, Feng Shui 2, uh, 13th Age. I'll talk about those next episode. So this episode... The other games I played in are things like Dungeon Crawl Classics, run by Carl Rodriguez, so the Geomology Presents. I'm not really going to talk about that because it's already been covered over on Carl's podcast. It's been covered on the Arcane Alienist podcast by BJ. Arlen Walker of Live from Pelham's Wasteland is also a, ga- a player in that game, and he'll probably talk about it on his podcast. So I, so I don't feel there's really anything to add aside, and I've called into those podcasts with comments anyway, but... I, I think Carl's doing a great job. I'm very happy he's running that game. I'm really enjoying that game, and I'm looking forward to the next episode of that game. The game I think I will talk about, though, that I've been in, and, and this isn't to say I haven't been in other games recently, because I have been, but but I think the one game I'm going to concentrate this recap on is Arlen Walker's Astonishing Swordsman and Source of Hyperborea game, Ash game. And Carl's talked about this over on the Gemologist Presents already. But I'm gonna I want to talk about something different. I so I'm not really gonna give you a gaming recap. Carl kind of gave you a gaming recap there. There was some interpersonal relations that could have been better amongst the party. And we had a good talk afterwards. So I wanna I, this isn't so much a session recap as a lessons learned from a session, I guess. Um, in that session which is a sword and sorcery world, we were going into some, effectively a dungeon. We were going into some tunnels, that were, which turned out to be a, a cave complex, not a cave complex, but effectively a dungeon complex underneath a crypt. And we used Roll20 to do that. And we went down there and, like I say, there were some interpersonal conflicts, and Carl talks about that on his show, although it leaves out the fact that his thief refused to do his thiefly duties initially. But that, that's neither here nor there. What, what's important to me and what, what I want to talk about, because all the players in that game are great players. We had a lot of fun. And we had a talk after the game about the, you, you know, the conflicts and where we were butting heads. And I think you need to be able to do that in games. I think if you experience problems in games, I think if a player seems frustrated in a game, it's important either to stop the game right there or after the session to say, hey, can we talk for a minute? And, and we sat and talked probably for half an hour after that game about the personal dynamics during that game and things we liked and didn't like. And, and we really cleared the air. And I think that was very healthy. And I think you need to do that now and then. And this isn't Jason coming up with brand new knowledge. If you go watch Runehammer on YouTube, Hank Infernell's channel, the creator of ICRPG, he talks about this, how, you know, every you know, so many sessions, maybe instead of playing a game, you need to just have it sit down with a beer and, and chat. 
hey, how's the game going? Do a state of the game and how's everybody feeling? And I don't know that you need to do that instead of a game, but I do think that it's important to do a check-in. So we do a session zero at before games. Well, it's important to do checkup sessions. And they can just be a talk after a game. They don't have to be a whole session. But I think it's important to you know, get the current state, how everybody's feeling, are there things that they don't like, are there things we should maybe try to tweak to make everybody a little bit happier during the game. And this isn't just the players, it's also the GM. Because if the GM's not having fun running it, then we need to tweak it so the GM's having fun as well. And so we had a really good talk after the game. Arlen did a good job with um, moderating that talk and letting us know how he felt as a GM. And, and I think everybody really engaged, so, so it was good. Arlen did a great job with that game creating a map. We were using Roll20, we are using Dynamic Lighting, and I do think that adds to the game. My big problem during that game, and and I did a little bit of a rant about it during that session, was that it was feeling like a video game to me. Not because, I don't like VTTs anyway, but I agree when you have tactical combat, VTTs help. If you're playing a game like Pathfinder, you really do want that battle map because your abilities and your your different things are triggered by your spacing and your location. And while you could do it theater of the mind, potentially you're going to nerf some characters' abilities and they're, it's going to be harder for characters to engage their special abilities and their feats and all that if they don't know exactly where they are in relation to other, you know, other players on the board or other monsters or whatever. We were playing Astonishing Swordsman and Source of Hyperborea, but... But I, I do think the maps, especially in the dungeon, did add something. And, and Arlen was using dynamic lighting, which I think is really cool. And so basically, you know, if a character has a torch, then you can see, you know, however far the torch goes. And if a character doesn't have a torch and they're close enough to a character with a torch, they can, you know, they're going to see that. But if the character with the torch moves far enough away from a character without a torch, the character without the torch, that player, all they see is a black screen, right? Which, which is, you know, arguably realistic. The problem was that we weren't using strict turn order outside of combat. So when we were, got down in this dungeon, there were some really big chambers down there. The people, the torches were, because we weren't didn't have any kind of turn order, everybody was free to just kind of move their pieces around. And so those of us without torches were getting left in the dark. and Because you can't see the torchlight if you're not in, the, in that 30-foot range or whatever it is. So, you know, with people just moving their, their tokens around to explore the dungeon, and then the other people just being left in the dark, it just it felt like a video game to me, and, it, and, and I got frustrated at that. So we talked about that afterwards, and, and we all agreed that Arlen's dungeon design was great, and it was neat to use dynamic lighting and all that kind of thing when you're in that dungeon environment. But maybe what we'll do is do a turn structure in the future, so even when you're outside of combat, you know, he'll go around and say, okay, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And if a character moves, you know, well, they can't just zip all the way around a big room. They can move so many squares, and then the other characters can keep up with them. And, and that way we don't have an unrealistic character. We don't have an unrealistic situation where the torch goes off exploring and everybody else is just left in the dark because the party's probably going to stay together, right? So we, we had that discussion. And I'm, prevent- I'm presenting a very... Um, a very short version of this discussion we had. And, and the key here is, the important thing to remember here is, 
this was a positive outcome. This was players, mature players, discussing what problems they had during the game, coming to, you know, conclusions and coming to agreements on how to handle those problems, whether it's interpersonal, whether it's with the platform we're using, whatever. This isn't anybody was wrong. This isn't Arlen was a bad GM. This isn't any of that. If anything, it was Jason's a bad player for voicing frustration during the game, right? So if anything, it's, <laughs> you know, I, I feel I started some of the issues in that game. But the fact we came together at the end of the game as a team to talk about what was going on and, and all left, I think, as a stronger group is the positive here. So the takeaway is every now and then after your sessions, talk with all your players and make sure you're on the same sheet of music. Or if you have to tweak what you're doing, tweak it. You know, don't, don't ignore if players are getting frustrated with things. I think that's how groups fall apart. Um, and and this isn't saying VTCs are bad or rant against VTCs. It's really not that. And I think for what we're doing for that session, using Roll20 with dynamic lighting was the appropriate choice on Ireland's part, without question. So I don't think anything wrong was done from a mechanical point of view there. Um, so I do want to make that clear. Um, but re- really, I, I don't have much to say as far as session. So this isn't so much a session recap. And I apologize if I misconstrued misrepresented this segment of the show. So to make that up for you, we have an unboxing. But before that, I've got a call in from the community manager for RichterCon 2020X. Greetings, Mr. Connolly. My name is Forever Moan, the project manager for RichterCon 2020X. To answer Mr. Norton's question, yes, the graphic speedo with Joe Richter's face on the front and, um, bottom will indeed be for sale. However, it must be noted that the images will be on the inside. (laughs) I hope, Mr. Connolly, that that answers your question. Thank you so much for answering Daniel's question about the swag from RichterCon 2020X. I very much appreciate you guys supporting my show, and we have more commercials for RichterCon in future episodes. Now, let's get to that unboxing, folks. What I have here is a mailing envelope. It's uh, one of those Manila mailing envelopes from USPS. It is three hand widths tall, two hand widths wide and very thin. Um, it's from Chronicler Games in Lubbock, Texas. So let's see what's in here. I don't need a, any kind of special thing to open it because it's just an envelope. So I can just peel it open here, rip open the top, and we will take this out. I'm assuming this might be something from Kickstarter. Um, who knows? So we're now pulling it out. And this is, this is a Kickstarter project, specifically a Zine Quest 3 project. This is Harboiled, a private eye role-playing game by Jack E. Byers. And this was a project, he was a first-time creator, but I wanted to make the, get this because I, I like the noir genre and the private eye genre. So if, if you're interested in learning more, his website is www chroniclergames.com, all one word. And yeah, so this is the, it's listed as a first edition. 
It's 28 pages long. There is some art in here. There's one... Hold on, I'm looking through here. There's one full-page art piece. There are a couple half-page art pieces and a couple quarter-page art pieces. So this is probably like 26 pages of material. Um, but that's okay. What he gives you in this book are the rules to play a PI game, a noir private investigator game. He gives you rules for creating your agency, for creating your character. He gives you rules for creating the story. You, you know, he gives you a, a location, a, 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 a corrupt American city called Blackport. And he gives you a bunch of locations in that city. He, he gives you some NPCs, gives you a descriptor generator to help you describe characters. And he gives you, you know, some other generators here to generate noir and private eye kind of mysteries, as well as a bunch of GM tips and advice. So very cool. Maybe I'll get this to the tables a one shot one of these days. I, I would like to get it out there. I know a couple of my players are interested in like private eye noir stuff. So hopefully we can get this to the table. Um, very nice. It's all just black and white as appropriate for the genre. Um, yeah, it's a decent quality, no complaints. Um, and I'm glad I got it. Hi, Jason. That interview with Paul was really, really great. Um, that's one hell of a way to get yourself back into gaming. I'm not sure I'd be prepared to put myself through three days of anxiety just to GM a game, but uh, it does put my pussyfooting around into perspective. But I was really calling up about steampunk. Uh, the term was coined by a, an author called K.W. Jetta, who, along with a few other authors, uh, released some books in the mid-80s where they kind of taken the ideas of cyberpunk and put them into the 19th century uh, using kind of, you know, old technology. And, um, yeah, I don't think they'd put much more thought into the term than that. Okay, Spencer's not being mean to be here. And let's be honest, Spencer's a cool guy. That's Spencer, also known as Free Thrall, from the Keep Off the Borderland podcast. I've known Spencer for a long time. I really like him. He's a good guy. So I apologize, Spencer, for including you after I said the calls were bad calls, because that's not totally true. Um, Sp Spencer's talking about the origin of the term steampunk, because I, I postulated in a previous episode that I didn't understand why what was punk about steampunk. So that was Spencer's response to that. Again, Spencer, I apologize for lumping you into the to the negative calls. But because Spencer's call was kind of nice, let's go to one of the meaner ones. Arg, shiver me timbers, Jason. Your pirate talk is not so good, I will say. Ah, matey. I think I got to keelhaul you and send you down to Davy Jones. But uh, whatever. Keep it up. You sound like some pretend Irish pirate. Not one of us real pirates from Portugal or Tortuga. Anyway, happy talk like a pirate day, matey. And I'll see you down for some rum.
and maybe we'll meet back in uh, in Davy Jones' locker. That was Carl Rodriguez, the Geomologist Presents podcast. And yeah, I do the best I can. Voices aren't my thing. And he is planning to run a seventh C. Is it seventh C or seven C's? I think it's seventh C game with Arlen Walker, uh, live from Palms Wasteland. And I hope who will hear from Arlen later in the show. And I hope them the best luck of that game because my pirate talk isn't up to snuff. I'll sit that one out. Now, let's go to the next call. Ahoy, it's Captain Redbeard calling in for Talk Like a Pirate Day. You know, it's days like today. I miss me old crew. I had a first mate. I had a first mate. He had a wooden leg. His name Pete. Come to think of it, I never did find out the name of his other leg. Arr. Hey, Jason, this is Fake Joe over at Biggest Geekus, listening to episode 239, way behind, but I'm trying to catch up. Anyway, with regard to Jules' conundrum, uh, with player knowledge, character knowledge, and the whole troop play issue, just want to say, troop play stinks. I hate it. Um, Now that that's out of the way, um, I think that that problem that Jules is having is pretty uh, specific to that particular situation. I don't think it's a general problem, except when you're talking about a table where uh, the party is split, different players have different knowledge, and sometimes players will act on the knowledge that their characters cannot possibly have. Uh, So it's not the same player with different kinds of knowledge. I think the best solution to this problem is to not do it this particular way. Um, it's uh, probably a bad idea to send uh, a group of characters run by players that have the knowledge that they shouldn't have and try to play it like the, the characters don't have that knowledge. A superior way to do this would be to either present a, um, a fact-finding mission and then uh, at the end, the players send off the troops, and that's narrated. Or uh, the players are presented with a um, um, an already found out conspiracy that they need to go punch in the nose. And you don't mix the two. It's probably a bad idea. Another way to solve it is to have two player groups one player group they though they might have both uh, investigators and soldiers as characters they would not send their um, investigators and soldiers onto the same mission you would have one group find out the intelligence and then the other group of players with their soldier characters go in and deal with the menace with uh, fresh knowledge uh, it's a little bit, it might be more of a challenge for a single DM to coordinate uh, two different groups, but people do it all the time. If you want uh, that kind of thing, it's better to have two different groups. Uh, or in the previous uh, um, so-called solution, you just have one piece of that be in the background. So this call refers to 
something that came up during RPG a day where Jules over at Jules from NZ was talking about a situation she encountered in a game that she's in where she was playing two different characters that had different knowledge. And so she was, you know, trying to make sure she separated the, the character knowledge of the two different characters when she was role-playing them. That, that's kind of a, a really quick summary of that. I'll include a link in the show notes, the episode from Jules that specifically, you know, deals with us. But what we're hearing from Joe here is a, a attack on the idea of troop play and basically the idea that Mars... Ars Magica is a bad idea, and the whole way that game runs with the troop play mechanic is a bad idea. And I don't know. I received a number of other calls, and, and as you catch up with my episodes, Joe, you'll hear other other people call in on this idea. And other people are not as down on troop play as you are. Car Rodriguez and Daniel Norton and a few others are actually pretty gung-ho for this idea. And what we're talking about, folks, is the idea of having different character, one player having multiple PCs, not necessarily a PC and henchman, but full-scale PCs. And so let's say we're playing a, a modern investigation game, or let's say we're playing Law & Order. For anybody in America, you know what Law & Order is. For overseas, Law & Order is a TV show where it's an hour-long episode, and the first half of the show are the cops that are arresting the criminals, and the second half of the show are the lawyers prosecuting the criminals. So if we were playing Law & Order, the RPG, you would create a police officer character and you'd create an, an attorney or a DA, a district attorney character. And, and then once you capture the criminals, you would switch characters to prosecute them. Or in what, a more likely role-playing sense, you might have investigators that are investigating mystery. And once they find that mystery, then you switch to the assault team that goes down to take out that group of cultists or whatever it is. So the, what Joe's saying is that's a bad idea and don't do it because it's hard to separate the character knowledge of those two PCs that you've created. And to be fair to Joe, he hasn't heard the responses of the other callers in the later episodes. But, but I, I personally do think this is a doable thing. I, I think you could do it. In fact, I refer to it as having your cake and eating it too because you can create that investigative character and then you have a separate character created as, as the combat monster. And, and so you can, you know, interact with all the aspects of the game. And instead of having one character that's kind of like a Mary Sue good at everything, you have, you know, these different characters that have different strengths. But you switch between the characters when they're doing the different missions. Now, obviously, in this game, sometimes the investigators can be stuck in combat. And sometimes your combatants are going to be stuck in investigations, you know and play their weaknesses. It's not all about power tripping, but it, it does allow you to use specialized characters, specialized tasks. The key is just not to bring, you, you know, player knowledge in. So I don't know. It's an interesting concept. I think before I write it off as, as Joe has summar summarily done, I would like to try it and see how it works. Like I say, Ars Magica uses this idea. It's on the fifth edition now. And while I haven't played Ars Magica, lots of people really like that system. So, it, it, you know, I hear a lot of good things about it. So it's hard to believe all those players are just playing wrong. But Joe has some more comments. Also in that particular episode, you 
um, talked about how you don't like skill systems as in because they are limiting. Well, that's fine. They should be. People should be limited to a degree. You shouldn't be able to just go off and do anything. That doesn't make any sense. No, nobody has that breadth of knowledge. Uh, you could try anything, and I don't think a skill system, unless it's specifically codified in it, uh, limits you in that regard. You can try anything. You just might have not have any bonuses on your roll. Uh, Mudsword will have a skill system, albeit a very generalized one or a very abstracted one where there aren't hard set skills. Now that might satisfy you. It might not, but uh, give it a look once we have it out. Talk to you later. Keep up the good work. Bye. So as far as skill systems go, I actually don't mind skill systems in games. I just think most games, they're not implemented well. And that's why I prefer to have a career system like Barbarians Lemuria, where your character is, say, a sailor, and then, you know, they get that bonus to anything that has to do with sailing. Kind of like backgrounds in a lot of games. And the reason I have that dislike for skill systems is most games, when you create a character, don't give you nearly enough skill points to make a realistic character. Joe, if you go to Call of Cthulhu or go to, you know, whatever game, you pick a game of the skill system, are there enough points there to recreate you as you exist now? You know, I find there typically aren't enough points in these games to recreate me as I am now, even as kind of broken and, you know, decrepit as I am these days, and, and I guess arguably forgetful as I am these days, but you don't have enough skills to give that breadth of real human knowledge and real human ability, at least for somebody that's gotten out and lived life. So, you know, I, that's my problem with skill systems is they seem, yeah, anybody can try anything, but if you have a, if it's a percentile skill system, for example, if, you know, if it's a scale of one to a hundred and, and your skills 20%, well, you know, you pretty much stink at it. Right. And there are a lot of things that you can do that you don't stink at that are represented in these skill systems. And that's the other problem with skill systems. And again, this isn't a hundred percent universal condemnation, but many skill systems have many, many skills. They have so many skills instead of having broad skills, they have very specific skills. You know, you have a lot of systems where science is broken down and you'll have, you know, five or seven different science skills. Right. And, all those specific science skills, and you have so many skills, you can't put the points in there to show you don't have enough points to spread around, basically. And so that, that's kind of my problem with skill systems is I don't think it's possible to to start out with a realistic character. And that's unless you give somebody tons and tons and tons of points. And obviously you can do that. But for the most part, beginning characters in those games don't seem realistic to me. Uh, and and that's kind of my my beef there. I think given enough points and be able to create those char- characters as realistic people. So say we're not going to create points, just create yourself or create you know th- that character in your mind with the skill points the way you see them. I, I think it'd be okay. But most of those games are very limiting as far as how many points you have to start with. So that that's where I'm coming from with the with the skill system angle that. You know, not everybody is 18 years old that has an experienced life, right? And if you're creating a character that's in their 30s, 
that's lived life, they're going to have a hell of a lot of skill points. And most of these systems, even though you're potentially creating characters at those levels, don't give you the points to create characters like that without you going in there and house rolling it. You hear him mention Mudsword. That's a a D&D fantasy heartbreaker game that they're developing over at Biggest Geekus. If you're interested in that, go check out their show. If you're not interested in Mudsword, you may still want to check out that show. They have some very interesting discussions over there. I will warn you that Biggest Geekus is conservative and, and Christian as far as their leanings in the podcast goes, which isn't to say it's bad, but some people, those that's going to turn off. So if that turns you off, it probably isn't worth even tuning into it, to be honest, um, because they're unabashed in their opinions, which, again, I'm not saying they're wrong to do that. It's 100% their right to be unabashed in their opinions. And, and I fully support that freedom of speech. But I, I think it's important for listeners to know so they can choose what podcast they tune into, right? So anyhow, that, that's Joe over Big Biggest Geekus. And you know what? He's still not done because now he's going to put out a couple very, very wrong opinions. Hey, this is Joe from Biggest Geekus calling because I just listened to your episode to uh, 240, I think. We were talking about some sword and sorcery movies and their relative uh, merits, shall we say. Uh, I'm just going to have to go on the record to say that I don't think there's a single good sword and sorcery movie. Some of them are fun to watch, perhaps, but actually good movies? Nah. There are, uh, I mean, Sword and, The Sword and the Sorcerer, uh, garbage. Um, what's the other one? The, the Hawk, The Slayer, absolute trash. I mean, uh, if you can think of one that's uh, better than Conan the Barbarian as a sword and sorcery movie, then uh, uh, let me know. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye. Hey, this is the other Joe. And, you know, I'm not sure how to put this, but uh, I've been trying to catch up with your podcast and just was just listening to an episode where you mentioned an unfortunate uh, movie spectacle called Iron Eagle that probably should never have been made. If, if we're all being honest, uh, awful. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to do now. Uh, although, if you really want to watch Lewis Gossett in a good show, it would be Enemy Mine. Not anything to do with Iron or Eagles. My two cents. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, now we get Joe's opinions on movies, and yeah, I I, I don't know, Joe. I, I I think you need to. Well. Definitely after your next call that we'll be playing, you know, your man card will be in, in grave jeopardy, if not already lost. But these movie opinions are also very damaging because if you're around in the 80s and, and you enjoyed movies in the 80s, I, I don't see how you couldn't be a fan of Iron Eagle and be a fan of the various sword and sorcerer movies. I've said many times that I do believe Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger is the best sword and sorcery movie. Just like I believe that Excalibur is the best fantasy movie. And I stand by those opinions. 
But these other movies, I, I guess it really depends on our opinion of good and what you're looking for for a movie. So maybe you could call in with with some some comments on what you consider to be good fantasy movies or good movies. But yeah, I we may be looking for different things in movies. That that's possible. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not saying production values or acting or story are the, the best in the world in, in a lot of these sword and sorcery movies, but they're fun movies, they're evocative, and they, they put you in the spirit of playing these games. And, and they let you escape for 90 minutes or two hours. And that's all I ask for out of a movie. And and I'll watch Deathstalker 2 all day long before one of those three-and-a-half-hour Lord of the Rings or Hobbits movies that bore me to death. So that's just me. As far as, again, Iron Eagle goes, I I don't know what to tell you, man. I, Iron Eagle's like the, the pinnacle of your of your movie with fighter planes in the eighties. There's, there's nothing else that touches that movie. Um, and as far as Lewis, Lewis Scott Jr. goes, I mean, he's in many, many amazing movies. So yeah. Enemy mine is a, a great movie. Um, but you know, it sounds like you wouldn't even like Firewalker where he teamed up with Chuck Norris. So I don't know, man, but let, let's play that call that really, really is damaging. To, to your reputation, my friend. Talking about beer. Oh, why would we ever do that? Beer is horrendous. Anybody who says beer is good, I can't really trust your taste buds. They seem to be a, they seem to have been deadened by the swill that comes out of those beer bottles. Um, anyway, great show. Talk to you later. Bye. Hey, Joe. You, actually, before I address Joe, let me address everybody else. If you don't like if you don't drink alcohol if you have used to drink and have stopped drinking or you just have decided you're going to abstain that is a totally valid choice i 100% respect and defend your your choice there and i'm not attacking you but for somebody to talk about beer being swill i mean i thought you're a red-blooded american joe do you not like steak do you not like apple pie i think you need a recalibration Hey Jason, this is Joe again. I've left you a lot of messages, but I'm really trying to catch up on your podcast and catching some of this uh, dwarf on dwarf action here. And something that I harp on, probably uh, to my detriment, is playing or having these demi-human or non-human races to be somewhat distinct in some kind of way from humanity. And so far, I've just heard a bunch of human traits, and uh, which is fine. Um, I'm not going to down someone for playing the dwarf the way they want to, but it would be interesting. I don't, and I don't even really know what it would be like um, specifically to try to play dwarves in a way that makes them seem different from humans. And I don't really know what that looks like. I've been mulling it over and really haven't come up with much of a solution. Keep up the good work. Well, first of all, I think we need to do a little bit of a plug here. If Dwarf on Dwarf action is what you want to hear, I refer you over to Hindsightless After Dark. 
that is the place to discuss and listen to all that kind of stuff. But as far as role-playing dwarves and why dwarves speak Scottish and all that, and, and that's kind of the topic that Joe's responding to here, a discussion we've had, because someone, I believe it was Arnold Walker, called in asking why dwarves are usually played Scottish. And we've had a bunch of calls in the past on that. Um, yeah, so actually, I agree with Joe here, to be honest. I think that it's hard to play these non-human bioforms you know, accurately. I think usually when people play an elf, they play a pointy-ear human. Or when they play dwarf, they play a grumpy, a grumpy short human that can detect slope in um, tunnels and, and can detect, you know, the quality of, of stonework, right? When we're playing these other bioforms, other species, that we're, we're really just playing humans with special traits. And we're not really inhabiting you know, these other species mentally. And and it's hard to do that. You know, if you're a dwarf, say you're a Tolkien dwarf, right? And dwarves were, you know, came because they were carved out of stone originally. Or you're playing elves, you know, that live these thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's a very hard thing to get in the mindset to role play. You know, much less a tiefling or a dragonborn or something like something else like that. So I think the idea of properly role-playing characters that aren't human is hand-waved in a lot of games. I think in a lot of games, people just play these other species because they want the cool ability of those species, but they're not actually inhabiting the mindset of those species. Now, understand, I'm not saying that's 100% the case. I'm sure, I know for a fact there are characters out there that do their best to inhabit the mind space of those other species. So when they play an elf, they're really trying to play an elf and they're trying to play up what how they believe an elf would think. And of course, because these are made up things, all we can do is do our best to you know play how we think they you know they would do that. And you as the GM or the DM are doing this when you're role-playing NPCs already. So Joe, to bring this back to you, whenever you're playing, you, you know, you're running a game and you have orcs or hobgoblins or bugbears or dragons or whatever creature, and you're having a conversation with the PCs, you know, from these enemies' monsters' perspective, you're inhabiting that monster's mindset. And, and that's really no different than a character playing a dwarf. Now, that character playing the dwarf is in that mindset the entire game, where you as the DM are going to hop between mindsets. So it's harder on the DM if they're doing it properly. But this is always a conundrum in D&D, &D, and it's like an actor conundrum, right? Trying to inhabit somebody else's shoes, and you have to imagine those shoes not as a pointy-eared human, but as a totally different species, and reacting as that species would react, because, you know, dwarves aren't just short humans. So, so I do think that's an interesting angle, and I think some role-playing games really try to engage us. I think Burning Wheel tries to engage us more than others. Um, and there are some games out there that really do try to do this. And there are a lot of players out there that do try and, and, and I would argue probably do succeed. So I, I don't think it's impossible to do, but I think for many people, they don't really think about that and they really don't play up the fact they're playing a different species as much. And, and if I'm offending anybody here, I'm not talking about, and if you do try to play a dwarf from a dwarven mindset, and is separate, then I'm not talking about you. 
So this is a very classic case of the shoe fits where, if the shoe fits where, and if, you know, but, but I do think many, in many cases, people are playing just to get the special abilities. And that's why human centric game is a little bit easier. But I have to ask you this, is it easier for a human, for a man like me to uh, a heterosexual male like me to role play uh, a male heterosexual dwarf or to role play a human female? Because the the human female mind is is a mystery to me. And I, I kind of think I could better inhabit the mindset of that dwarf than I could a, a, a woman. And I, that's not putting down anything down on women, but we have men that play women and women that play men all the time in role-playing games. So is trying to play another species all that different, you, you know, arguably, right? So, I mean, men and women are from different planets, right? Venus and Mars. So I don't know. I, I'd be interested in hearing other people weigh in on this. And I want to thank Joe for all his calls. I really do appreciate them. And, you know, Biggest Geek is, is a podcast I listen to. And and I do enjoy their conversations and their thoughts on different topics. Um, I don't always agree with their opinions, and that's okay because they don't always agree with mine, as you've heard. But I, I do think it's important to keep our minds open, and we don't, as I said at the beginning of the episode, we don't want to be in an echo chamber where everybody agrees with each other. And with that, I think we should move on to another caller. But first, how about we lighten the mood with another joke? Hey, it's Redbit again, with a little bit of pirate trivia for you. What do you call a band of pirate what only steals from the library? You call them buccaneers. Book on ears. What's up, Jason? It's Arlen. I'm going to push back a little bit on some of your comments on episode 250, specifically you talked about the um, sequence in the Ash Valuria game where the undead ape man did his inhalation thing and sucked some of your constitution out um, and how that was more interesting than just telling you what was going on. And I agree that as a tactical encounter, it made it more interesting to not just say, hey, this is an undead who's going to have some constitution draining powers at the beginning of the conversation. But I think if you look at the larger picture, you will notice that that encounter didn't really exist on its own. And that that encounter in particular was really not designed to create an interesting tactical encounter, but to signpost the interesting tactical encounter that it was next to. That the undead ape man only existed only really existed so that you guys would have a way to encounter a less deadly form of undead so that you would know that the undead in the sarcophagi were likely to be stronger and more dangerous and might even be incorporeal because they didn't leave any footprints when they turned the ape man. So really, that encounter was, I think... And I think that the the later part of the encounter where you guys figured out how to deal with the wraiths without actually, you know, anybody dying from the race, which I think the alternative, if we hadn't sat and talked about your level of information, what you guys might know about the race and all that sort of stuff, if somebody had just gone over and opened one of the sarcophagi while standing next to them, the wraith probably would have killed them, right? I mean, the wraiths only do 1d6 damage, but if they're draining a level every time they hit or on a failed death save every time they hit... That's 
that's going to kill second level characters pretty easily. Um, and so my point about that is that at, I think it's a mistake to think of the undead ape man as a tactical encounter that instead the undead ape man was sort of the vanguard of a larger tactical encounter, a way for you guys to have some signpost of what was to come without kind of completely just feeding you information about it um, directly, but giving you guys a chance to realize, oh, hey, there might be, you know, undead who are making more undead in these sarcophagi and all that sort of stuff. So I think if you think about it that way, that makes my point more clear because really what I did was basically give you a chance to face a lesser version of the sort of threat that those big bad undead, the wraiths actually faced for you guys. And, you know, you guys use that tactical information really well. So I think that, um, rather than making a point about not telling your players information, the undead ape man should be a point about, about structuring encounters in a way to allow for the players to get information to allow them to make tactical decisions that you don't necessarily need to say, okay, these are in dud, so they're going to drain your constitution or drain your life force or anything like that. But there is a real value in creating that kind of ways within the fiction to understand that that's sort of what's going to be occurring. And that I think the undead ape man was a really great example of that because um, it was basically just through that encounter that you guys figured out that there were going to be wraiths in the sarcophagi and that you needed to, you know, tie the ropes and stand outside and all that sort of stuff. And a little bit of your own knowledge, you know, player knowledge of undead and all that sort of stuff. But really it was based, I think, largely, basically if the undead ape man hadn't been there, somebody would have probably just opened up one of the sarcophagi and probably died from the wraith. So... I guess what I'm saying is talking about how the undead ape man not knowing what it could do made the tactical encounter more interesting is, I think, the wrong way to look at it because the undead ape man wasn't really the tactical encounter. He was just a little bit of hit point damage and the signpost of the actual tactical encounter because the actual tactical encounter was the wraiths where you guys had that information and were able to, you know, cleverly deal with the wraiths without anybody dying or anything like that in a what much more interesting way i feel like than if you guys hadn't had that information that the, the outcome was significantly more interesting than just you know oops the wraiths pop up and they're gonna be big and bad and scary and all that sort of stuff so anyway that's my point about giving the players information about how the game is working and how the monsters work and all that sort of stuff Oh, it's Redbeard here again with one final pirate fact for you. What letter does a pirate use to mark the treasure on his map? It's the letter R. <laughs> what, did you think it was the letter X? Well, now you're just giving in to bad stereotypes, mate. And you should do a little soul searching. I want to thank BJ from the Arcane Alienist for all those pirate jokes to help lighten the mood this episode. Really appreciate them. When you take pirate jokes and dad jokes and mash them together, you, you get something that's pretty special. So thank you, BJ. Of, of course, that previous series of calls was Arlen Walker from Live from Pelham's Wasteland, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. 
And let me address that series of calls from Arlen. Yeah, I think you're looking at that as as a DM from the fact, you know, knowing that you'd made that that way and, and signpost. And I'm not disagreeing with you on that you did that, but that doesn't change the idea of the initial encounter because it was an encounter in isolation. And then it led to the, you know, there are two separate things, two separate battles. And I was just looking at the first battle, not the, the whole picture. You're right. But in discussing that, the particular idea here, the idea that we shouldn't know all the creatures' abilities prior to fighting them, I, I think looking at that battle in isolation was appropriate. But I, I think you bring up a good point and, and you validate my point. My point was that indeed, the player should not know, you, you, a, a GM shouldn't put in front of the players, these are the abilities of the monster you're fighting. The player should not know the mechanical stats of the monsters they're fighting. And arguably, the player shouldn't even know the name of the monster they're fighting unless they've encountered it before. I think it's perfectly fine to say a shadowy form appears in front of you as opposed to say a ghost appears in front of you, right? Um, and we've had that discussion in the past. But as far as the tactical knowledge and, and learning as you go, I think you very clearly defined my point because we didn't know the specifics of the race in your world and we didn't know the specifics of that undead ape man. And so we learned that while we were playing. And the fact we learned while we were playing made the game more exciting and more fun. At least it did for me and Che Webster of Roleplay Rescue is also called in saying it made it more fun for him as well. So you're not wrong in what you're saying, but that's kind of really defending my assertion that spoilers about the monsters are best left avoided because it's much better for the players to learn about the monsters during the game through emergent play. And those tactics will develop as a result of that emergent knowledge. So in the end, Arlen's really defending my point here, um, whether we're looking at the, the smaller individual battle or we're looking at the whole encounter. Arlen has defended the fact that we should not know the mechanical ability of monsters ahead of ahead of time because that kind of spoiler will lessen the fun and lessen the excitement during the game. So Arlen, I appreciate your coming to my defense there inadvertently. I had a series of calls from Joe Richter responding to Daniel Norton and Darren Green's comments on character creation. Basically what happened is Joe and I published an episode on creating Joe's character in Cyberpunk 2020. And then Darren Green, also known as RFED, who's a game designer in his own right, he's designed decks and RPG where you use a deck of cards instead of dice and a great player. In fact, he's been, I've interviewed him on the podcast before. He, I think he was the first person I ever interviewed on this podcast. But Darren Green called in saying how he liked the cyberpunk character creation system and the backgrounds and, and how having the rolling up those random backgrounds and then role-playing that really kind of helps you as a player. And then Daniel called in talking about how he prefers backgrounds to be emergent because it's better for him as the GM if he's surprised during the game by backgrounds. And Joe called, referenced that. And I've given you all this background. I'm going to have to give it to you again. Because <laughs> I'm not going to play that this episode, because it kind of plays into my next episode where I talk about narrative games, 
because I think that background and emergent background and predetermined background all plays into the idea of that narrative game that I want to talk about next episode. So I, again, want to apologize for teasing you that you were going to hear Joe Richter's calls, but they'll be in next episode because they're going to fit better there. I want to thank all my callers. It's okay that we don't agree on everything. It's okay that we have different opinions on things. That's good. We should not live in echo chambers, people. You shouldn't always listen to media and people that agree with you. You need to go out and listen to those opposing opinions and get that well-roundedness. You need to have friends. Well, I say need. I believe it's better, and you're a better person, a stronger person, if you have friends that have different beliefs from you that you can sit down and be friends with, even if they're on the opposite end of the political spectrum, on the opposite end of the gaming spectrum, if, if you support different football teams. I, I think you should be able to be friends with people that have different opinions than you. And I think having those conversations and those relationships build you as a person because we are all individuals, um, and, and that's okay. So I want to thank all my callers. Go listen to their podcasts. I, I enjoy all their podcasts. I, if, if you want to take part in these conversations, you can. You can leave me a message on Anchor. You can send me an email, nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. If you attach a sound file, I'll play it on the air and make you famous. You can reach out to me on Discord. I'm on a number of different Discords. Again, you can attach a sound file there. Or if you just send me a message, I can read that message or read your email aloud on the air. I'm happy to do that. So if you want to engage in this podcast, there are many ways to do that. If you just want to listen, that's okay too. I appreciate your you're out there listening. So I want to thank, again, all my callers. I want to thank Ray Otis for the coffee cup clip art. I want to thank TJ Drennan for the wonderful theme songs and music he provides. And... I want to say I will talk to you guys next time. Take care. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie or a joke about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the gold. Well, your butcher is a dustman, and your moil is by a tipper, and I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper. Don't look away, don't look away, don't look away, don't look away. Well, the zombies are rising and the world has gone to hell. We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck.